inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and I'm so glad you're here. Now, if you didn't realize, I think I mentioned this last week, maybe the week before, but I am trying to do something just a little bit different where I will, instead of just having the questions be kind of all over the place, and we can definitely go back to that if you prefer them to be kind of more varied, but for the next few weeks, we're going to try to have them be more themed. And the theme of today's podcast is depression and suicidal thoughts. Um, and kind of anything surrounding that. And so I've picked all the questions with the most thumbs ups that focus in on those topics. Now, let's just jump into it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. First question says, hi, Katie. Is it normal to have constant thoughts of suicide? Whenever anything goes mildly wrong or even when nothing is wrong, but I feel overwhelmed, self-harm and suicide are always where my mind goes to, even though I've never attempted it. How can I cope with this? Also, does it indicate that one might attempt attempt it if the thoughts are recurring, even if it's just ideation? Thank you so much. Now, for anybody who's wondering, the term ideation means the thoughts. It doesn't, it means that there's no real action or no real plan. We're just having those, you know, suicide-based thoughts. Now, the to answer the first, I'm just going to kind of break these down. We'll go through question at a time. The first portion that asks if it's normal to have constant thoughts of suicide. I mean, as a therapist, obviously, I'm going to say I don't really like using the term normal because everybody's different, but we shouldn't be constantly considering ways to end our life. That's not a healthy mindset to be in. And so I guess I would have to say, no, it's not really normal. And it's something that I would definitely want to get some support for, whether that means that we see a therapist, we go to the hospital, we get inpatient treatment, something like that, because we're going to need to get some support so that we can get out of this kind of rut and probably we'll need some medication on board or something like that. So no, it's not, it's not healthy or normal. Okay. Now I said, how can I cope with this? Like I said, a lot of times when we're kind of caught in these ruts of depression and suicidal thoughts, it's really common for us to get like used to it. And we just kind of get in this cycle, right? Where we think negatively. So we look out into the world for negative things. Then we find those negative things because we're looking for them. And then we think worse about our world and we kind of go around and around and around. And that leads to, you know, more depression, more suicidal thoughts, thinking things are never going to get better. And that suicide and depression kind of uh, clouds our judgment and makes it hard for us to have any hope or any 
any positive thought about our future or our life, right? And so it just gets us caught in this rut and can make it worse and worse and worse. So medication, therapy, I know not everyone has access, but the great, one of the silver linings, I guess, about COVID is that almost every therapist offers things online now. And there are a lot of free clinics and free resources and ways that you can connect. And um, I know when it comes to like cheaper care, uh, BetterHelp, I always put the links in my description for BetterHelp. I think you get a discount if you use my link. I could be wrong, but I feel like you get like a 10% off or something. The links are in the description for that. There's also Talkspace. And then for some peer support, you can reach out to the crisis text line. You can just text hello to 741-741 or call one of your local crisis lines. Now, I've heard from a lot of you that the crisis lines aren't always great and crisis text line isn't 100% great either, but at least we have some options and we can reach out and we can try to get some support. But medication and therapy is going to be best. And if you have to go through your insurance, let's start that process now. Or if you're in a socialized system, let's get in line, right? I know a lot of it's like waiting. Let's let's start that process immediately, okay? And that's how we kind of cope with it. I also have some videos about creating suicide safety plans, but if we're actively suicidal or having like these constant thoughts, it might be difficult, but to create, if not impossible to create one, but we can always try. And a safety plan essentially is putting together, you know, three to five things that we can do, like coping skills, whether that's like an impulse log, love a good impulse log. It's also in my my book that came out um, last year. Wow, it's crazy that it's like, this is 2022 and it came out in 2021. But my book came out in September um, called Traumatized. And in it, I walk you through the impulse log and how to use it and what it is and all of that. And so that could be another resource. Anyways, your safety plan has you do those coping skills, wait 30 minutes, you know, call some people, text some people anyway. Um, and then, you know, you reach out for emergency services. So utilize that and that can really, really help. And then the final question says, also, does this indicate that one might attempt it if the thoughts are recurring, even if it's just ideation? Not necessarily. Um, it depends on the person. Again, I, as a, if let's say you were my patient and you were telling me this is happening. I would just have questions about it. How long has this been going on? Have you ever had a plan? Do you have the means to do it? If you don't really have a plan and you don't have the means to do it, it's not really a credible threat. Meaning I don't believe that you're going to actually do it, but I'd be curious about like why this is the out. Why does your brain go to this? It's interesting. Um, even for people who've had multiple suicide attempts, I'm always interested like hey, why is it that your brain decides that that's the, the thing to do? Or do you feel like it doesn't decide? But what triggers it, right? We, we need to be curious, not judgmental about our thought process because we get to those suicidal thoughts in some way. Even though I know it can feel like they're just constant and they're always there, why are they always there? What's going on? Like, just be curious, be a detective about your own experience. What's coming up for you? What are, what are those thoughts surrounding? Are there certain people, situations or whatever that cause it to be more frequent, as if that makes sense? Um, and so, no, I don't always think that this means someone's going to attempt, but I'm always very curious about the thought process and always very cautious and creating safety plans and doing check-ins until they go away. Because trust me when I tell you, they can go away. Now, there were comments on this. It said, I also deal with this. It's hard to talk about this in therapy um, for the fear that I'll be committed. A lot of you told me that you don't want to be hospitalized, and I get it. At what point does it become a real concern? It becomes a real concern when they're not just thoughts. Because suicidal thoughts, we have a lot of thoughts every day, right? I'm not saying that they're good or healthy or we want them to continue, but we all have a lot of thoughts. 
Does it mean we're going to do something about it? Nope. So if we don't have, again, the means or a plan and the threat isn't imminent, meaning it's not like, oh, I'm going to do it before my next therapy session, right? If it's not before I see you again, I don't really think that it's a huge concern. It is always a concern, but I'm not going to be super stressed and, and worried about it and feel like I need to like commit you in 5150 you. Um, and I've talked about this, I think, in the last podcast, but for anybody out there who hasn't listened to, you know, my previous podcast about this type of thing, there are steps that we go through. Yes, I know not all mental health professionals go through all these steps, but I was trained to do it this way. And so that I, all I can speak to is how I do it, right? Now, the steps that we are supposed to take, because if you don't recall, you hold your confidentiality when it comes to treatment, meaning I can't just all of a sudden commit you or tell someone that you're a, a danger to yourself or someone else. That's a that's breaking your confidentiality, right? So there are legal and ethical steps that we have to go through in order to protect you and keep you safe, but also to protect your confidentiality. So for me, I usually start by just writing up, like in session, I'll write this up, a little contract that you know I won't uh, attempt to take my own life or harm myself until my next appointment my patient signs it, um, or until our next scheduled check-in. Then I schedule check-ins. I'll ch- uh, text or call. I usually want to FaceTime so I can see them. Um, you know, in between sessions, depends on how often we're seeing each other, but probably every other day, if not every day. Um, and then if things progress, then I'd step into like, okay, can I call your roommate or your parent, whoever you live with, someone who can check on you? Can I do that? Um, and if it continues, then I'd be like, okay, well, would you consider, you know, well, and we could increase sessions in there as well, but I might be like, would you consider going into a program like treatment? Um, if you won't, and then it continues to get worse, then we might 5150 you, right? We might have to put you in the hospital, to keep you safe. But there's going to be a lot of these steps, right? Starting off with just like a, a contract between us saying that you'll keep yourself safe. Then, you know, check-ins and more sessions and reaching out to other people in your life. And, you know, there's a lot of steps in there before we we don't just jump to the uh, 5150 because that's breaking confidentiality. Okay. Now, there was um, another comment on this. Okay, so we did that one. The second one is, is it normal to always want to self-harm and have suicidal thoughts? It's always my go-to, especially when I'm going through a rough time. I feel like I can't imagine my life not having these thoughts. Is there something wrong with me for thinking this way? I feel like I would be lost without the self-harm and suicidal thoughts. It's who I am. Thank you so much for all that you do. You're so amazing. You're amazing. Um, <clears throat> I have to be honest, as as many of you know, but even just as a therapist in general, I don't like that it's who I am. Your mental illness is not who you are. It's something that you're dealing with. Just like, um, you know, you could say like, I'm selfish. That's who I am. No, it, it's a characteristic that maybe you don't enjoy about yourself or something you've recognized about yourself. And we haven't quite figured out how to work on it. Right. And that's how I view this. It's, we haven't quite figured out how to work on this. And it's just something that we jump to. It feels so natural, right? It's like innate. It's like a knee jerk reaction. Now, it's not normal to always want to self harm. You have to think about it this way. If, well, I guess if we're having, this is the best way I can describe it, but maybe it won't work for you. I can try another one. But if we, and have a happy, healthy life. Meaning, you know, I mean, we have regular stressors, but overall our relationships are healthy. Our family wasn't abusive. They were amazing and loving and supportive. Um, 
let's say we have emotional support from friends. We have this like vast support system of people. You know, um, we've always been able to talk about our upsets and our emotions with our family and friends. And it's always met with support. Um, I know it's like I- idyllic land, but it can happen. So let's say that that's happening for us, right? We have all this great support and everybody's so understanding. Do you think then that we would want to self-harm and we'd have suicidal thoughts when we're overwhelmed or just going through a rough time? The answer is no, because that's not a normal response. I can honestly and earnestly tell you, each and every one of you, I've never had thoughts to self-injure or like uh, take my own life of any thoughts of suicide. I've never had those. doesn't mean I can't understand it because obviously I've worked with a ton of patients and talked to many of you over the years about it. So I get where it's coming from, but I've never had those thoughts. And so I want you all to know that that's not the, a healthy mindset. Those are actually what we call maladaptive coping skills, meaning they don't actually help us in any way. I know that you feel like they do for a very short period. But consider this. When, let's say self-injury, for instance. When we we feel like it's going to help and we we do it, right? We, we self-injure and then we feel better for like mm, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe, before we start to feel guilt and shame about doing it. And we have like a ritual usually about cleaning it up or doing whatever. And then we then it starts to build again until we have to do it again. So it doesn't actually help anything. It doesn't move anything along. It doesn't help us feel heard or understood. Therefore, it's not helpful maladaptive coping skill. We just didn't have a better way of coping. And so I think finding other ways to cope, healthier, happier ways, whether that's through therapy, medication, can also be through communication with people that we love, or maybe we get into group therapy, maybe we journal, uh, maybe we pet our animals or go for a walk. I was looking over here because Roxy is taking a nap on her blanket. Um, You know, there are things that we can do to help us feel better that don't involve harming ourselves or even the consideration of the thoughts about taking our life because those actually don't help anything. We want to find some coping skills that truly help us feel better. Okay. Now, I don't like to say there's something wrong with you thinking that way, but it's not helpful. That's how I like to look at it. It's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's not making anything better for us. It's actually making it harder for us. Therefore, you know, it's, it's time to start considering letting it go and figuring out who we are outside of our self-injury and suicidal thoughts, because there's a lot to each and every one of us. We often just haven't been able to tap in and acknowledge who we are because we're probably overwhelmed. Maybe we've been abused. So even the thought of being in our body and like considering who we are is super triggering, but with the right help and support, we can get there. Okay. Now there was another comment on this and it says, I have a similar question, Katie. I have very intrusive or impulsive suicidal thoughts constantly. I have depression, but it mostly comes along with my eating disorder, and I don't think I necessarily want to die. Any minor inconvenience will happen, and suicide is my knee-jerk reaction. I've attempted many times in the past. There have even been weeks where I'd try every day, just out of impulse or some escape. I have other reasons that I suspect BPD. So could this be part of BPD? Or since they're so intrusive and persistent, could it be an obsession or part of OCD? This is a great question. Um, I don't think it's OCD. And here's why. I haven't, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, but I haven't seen someone who has an obsession and a compulsion that is suicide-based. Yes, we can have pure OCD, meaning just obsessions, which I even almost don't like using that term pure O because it's still OCD. It's just that the obsessions and compulsions are all mental, meaning we won't physically see someone doing something. Does that make sense? So like 
I've talked about this in the past. When I was a kid, there's this period of time. I don't know why, probably just stress and stuff. Um, but I was like 12 or 13. I would have to spell certain words before I could say them. And it, it would be all in my head, right? I have to spell them, blah, 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 and then I, then I could continue talking. And it just got to the point where it drove me crazy. So I forced myself to stop, even though it was super uncomfortable and anxiety provoking. But that's part of that, that Puro, meaning it was the thoughts and I had to do something in my head before I could take that action, right? So the thoughts and the compulsion, the action were all in my head. And that I've just never seen that based on suicide because again, I just, you're acting on it. I guess it's the action the, I don't know. I mean, I, there could be an argument to be made that it could be part of OCD. But again, I just, I don't know. I, I My mind does not go there, especially because it's so kind of impulsive. And I know it can feel intrusive, but you also have depression. So my my like therapist knee-jerk reaction is that it's more part of your depression and your eating disorder. And it's tied together there. Um, especially, I would I don't know if this is true, but I have a lot of patients who have restrictive eating disorders and it's kind of like a slow motion suicide attempt where they just like want to disappear. Um, and kind of like the goal is to not exist. And that could be kind of part of where this is coming from. Anyway, I have a lot of other questions about it, but I my gut just does not think that it's OCD because I, it doesn't, you haven't said anything about feeling like this anxiety is building until you do it. It's more that it's like impulsive and kind of intrusive. And usually anybody with OCD would tell you the anxiety builds until you do the thing. Um, but if that's the case, then maybe an argument could be made for OCD. Um, could it be part of BPD? Yes. Uh, a lot of people, all my people out there with borderline personality disorder. Yep. Right. We can be very impulsive and we can definitely have thoughts of suicide. And it's tied into a lot of things. The fear of abandonment, our issues with attachment, and even our struggle with like identity, right? And so I really believe that it could be part of that, but I would talk with your therapist about it. We're going to we're going to have to be curious, right? We don't have all the answers, but we have some potential possibilities. Um again, it could be part of your depression and your eating disorder, or we, we could have something else going on like a BPD or a possible OCD. Um but again, I, I just don't really think it's the OCD. But anyway, those are my thoughts, but talk to your therapist, um get properly assessed because each of those diagnoses comes with like their own symptoms and we'd have to assess to see whether or not it fits for you. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And it says, hi, Katie, can you talk a little bit about the effects of depression on the ability to concentrate? Good question. How does the lack of concentration in depression feel? And is it different from the lack of concentration in, for example, ADHD? Now, there were a few comments on this, but let's dig into this first. Now, if any of you don't know, one of the uh, main symptoms of depression. Now, not everyone's going to have this because I forget the actual criteria like in the DSM. And obviously we know the DSM isn't the end all be all, but it's a place to start, right? I think when it comes to a depression diagnosis, we have to have like five of the following nine symptoms. One of those nine being difficulty concentrating and difficulty with recall. So some people could have it. Some people may not. But when it comes to depression, essentially what happens is we we struggle a lot with um, low energy, right? Everybody, I think people could, people could tell me that when it comes to our depression, we're just like super fatigued. Everything seems like it takes a lot of mental eff like effort just to focus or to do like to get up and shower. Like everything's kind of exhausting. We don't enjoy things as much. And I believe it's those two types of sim symptoms. Um, and we have to have, you know, la lack of interest or 
or a depressed mood, one or the other, um, or both potentially in order to be diagnosed with depression. But I believe that it's kind of that combination and other symptoms as part of depression that lead to this lack of concentration. Because if we don't find things enjoyable, it's really hard to focus or to recall information that's not enjoyable. I will never forget having to read the the book, The Odyssey in school. Now, I'm sure some people loved it. I couldn't have hated it more. I called it my bedtime story because part of my AP English class was like, I had to read huge amounts of it like every week. And I would just try so hard and it would make me fall asleep. I hated it. It was so boring to me, right? Personal, you have your own uh, opinion. Hated that book made it really hard for me to concentrate. And I would never remember what I read because I like didn't even enjoy it. And I know that that's not depression and that wasn't, I didn't have depression at the time, but I just bring that up as like a core example of when things aren't interesting to us, we don't enjoy them. It's really hard for us to stay focused. And I believe it's the kind of that part of depression that makes this lack of concentration or difficulty concentrating so prevalent. And I think talking about the way that it feels going to feel different to everybody. But from what I've heard from you and my patients over the years, it's actually very irritating because we're really trying hard, especially at work or school to like read through what we need to read, you know, uh, put together even like an email, for instance, I've had patients who are struggling with depression be like, it takes me forever just to reply to an email and like make it make sense. Cause like, Oh, I can't focus. And I think it's that like, it's almost, it can feel like our brain just isn't quite functioning the way that it's supposed to and we can get really irritated and it can be really frustrating and it in the end it's just it's like more exhausting so it's almost like compounding the other issues um but yeah i don't know how how does it feel to you guys a lot of my patients said it's like being foggy brained or like like sleepy where you're just not quite awake like all day um or another one of my patients used to say that like she just look at words and like she couldn't put it together i don't know a lot of people have had it as a had this kind of like brain fog experience as an effect of COVID. And I've heard that uh, from my depressed patients for years. And so that might be, you know, some of the ways that it could feel. But again, everybody's different. Everyone's experience is valid. And the final question on this is how is it different or is it different from the lack of concentration, like for example, ADHD? Now, the difference with depression again goes, well, I guess you could say that ADHD is kind of similar because if you guys don't know, an ADHD brain just works differently. Nothing's wrong with us if we have ADHD. Our brain just works differently. It's like a a heat-seeking missile for dopamine. So it's looking around for things that are enjoyable and things that we like, and it it wants to find those things. And if we don't find something enjoyable and we don't like it, which I mean, spoilers is a lot of our jobs, like a majority of the things we do, we're like, blah, 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 right? Did you get the TPS report? Right? We don't, we're not interested. Then we go looking for things that are interesting. So like while we're trying to do the thing we know we have to do, it's not interesting. So we're like, oh, like squirrel, we're over to the thing that's more interesting. Um, and so anyway, and so that can be, you know, part of it. And I, I guess we could compare that to depression, but the, I wouldn't say that ADHD lack of concentration is like, I just have a brain fog and I just can't focus. I would say that ADHD is like, it's hard for me to, to sustain. Does that make sense? It's a little different. It's like in depression, it's not that you can't like try for a long period of time. It's just not working. ADHD is like, oh, I do it. No, I'm over here. And depression doesn't have that like switch of focus. 
Okay, now there was a, a few, there are a few comments on this. And the first comment says, as a follow-up, could you talk about mental fog and how it might be related to depression? Thanks for all that you're doing. Greetings from Italy. Oh, hello. Um, <clears throat> I feel like I've kind of already addressed this. The mental fog, that kind of difficulty with, you know, focus and recall is just, it, it's kind of like a lethargy meets it, that we're not interested kind of part. And we can feel like we're just staring at the words. Has anybody ever done that where you like read something then immediately you're like, what did I just read? That's like depression, like all the time. And um, that mental fog, I would put into that depression list of possible symptoms as that difficulty concentrating. I hope that makes sense. Now, another person says to add on, do you have any suggestions for how to deal with this lack of concentration or brain fog when you need to work? If your job is more or less productivity and it's going down, how would you approach that topic at work? To be honest, and I thought about this <clears throat> when I pulled this question, I thought a while about it because if you were my patient in my office, I would say, I might not approach that topic at work. I'd look into treatment for my depression, meaning medication, therapy, so like behavioral techniques, thought techniques, um, because jobs are not legally supposed to be able to fire us or demote us due to our mental illness there's like the the health is it health and safeties act what's it called it's a anyway there was a, a an act that was put into place in i think it's on a federal level but at least in the state of california and texas i know as well so i'd assume across and i'd assume also in other countries there there are laws against firing or demoting people due to any health issue, mental health, physical health, things like that. It's um, the Health Services and Disability Act, I think. Let me look it up. That's going to bother me. Um, I'll just look up Disability Act of 1990. I thought it was 1990, I think. Um, yeah, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's not the one I'm thinking of. But um, anyway, it's not important. But they, so, but that's another one, right? So if we if we applied for a disability, which a lot of my patients with mental illnesses have done, and I've helped, I help that, and your therapist can help you with that, filling out the paperwork and stuff. But anyways, long story short, um, they cannot fire you or demote you. But I've heard from a lot of you that the way they get around this is, you know, they just say, oh, we're, you know, we're, this part of our business is shrinking. So we're laying some people off, right? We don't need as many people or we're going to put you over here and they move you into a job that like you're not really, uh, you, you trained for. It's, it's something that you can't really do, you know, and then they find other ways to fire you. So I do know that people find ways around these legal, uh, protections. Um, and so my encouragement would be to try to get treatment first and then maybe approach it. And the best way to do it at your job is to give them as little information as possible. Talk to HR. We don't have to say it's a mental illness. We just have to say that we have a medical condition that is preventing us from doing our work at the fullest extent. And so we need, and then you can ask for certain things like, I just need a little more time on this, that, or the other, or I um, can't come in as early as I used to. I need, you know, I need more sleep, whatever it might be. And you can have a doctor, psychiatrist, a medical, regular general practitioner, therapist, write that up for you so that you can get the, the support and the, you know, adjustments that you need if that makes sense. I hope I'm making sense of this. I, it's kind of all over the place, but I hope that that helps you understand. Because again, <clears throat> I'd love, I wish people respected 
mental illnesses and disabilities and didn't harm our ability to make money in our careers, you know, with it, because they're not supposed to be able to, but they find ways around us. So as, you know, as a protector, and I would try to get support like treatment first. Now, the final question on this is, could we add being distracted and forgetful or a bad memory due to poor sleep? Now, this is a little bit different and not 100% related to the question, but I thought that I would answer it really quickly because it's a pretty simple question. Now, when we don't sleep well, our brains essentially doesn't have the time that it needs to like clean out our brain. It, um, I, I forget the amount. I think it like increases our cerebral spinal fluid in our brain by like 60% when we sleep. And that's when it like washes out all the random dead dendrites and bits of things. Like I always try to tell people, it's like, you know, when you forget that middle school Spanish you never used or the Pythagorean theorem, like all those things that aren't used in our brain, like get kind of washed out and cleaned out to make room for the things that we need to use every day. Or maybe we're learning new things. Maybe we're learning Spanish like I'm trying to, um, you know, and if it doesn't get that time, our brain gets clogged up essentially with like old things Uh, memories that didn't have time to like formulate and put into long-term memory. So it's like clouding up our short-term memory. So it means it's like, uh, imagine our brain. I love Inside Out because they do a really good job of explaining memory production. But if you haven't seen the film, just imagine that like we have this first room, which is like short-term memory. Those are things that we need to use right away. I'm, um, let's say uh, I'm going to make a call and they're like, okay, call us at, you know, five, 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 seven, three, two, five. And I'm like, okay, five, 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 seven, three, two, five. And I remember that number just long enough to put it in. And then I forget it. That's short-term memory. Boop. I don't need it. I don't need to file it away in long-term. I'm going to need to sleep so that my brain can clean out whatever remnants of that is left in there. Otherwise it's going to like be in that first room and it's going to, we're going to like almost uh, become like a a little bit of a hoarder in that first room. So then we don't have as much space for that short-term memory or the usable memory as they, they call it a lot. Um, so then I might start having trouble recalling other basic things or holding on to numbers. Like maybe you used to be able to remember five numbers in a row and now you can only remember like two and it's just harder for you to recall. And so if we're not getting enough sleep, it can be affecting our memory. And then also those memories of the day that we usually, when we sleep, our our brain like rolls them going back to the inside out model, like puts them into little marbles and rolls them into long-term memory. If it doesn't have the time to do that, because we're not sleeping well, right? A broken sleep, then we also uh, can't dig into our long-term memory and like recall things very well either. And we can trip over bits of that memory from the other day or the other week. It it just clogs up our memory system. That's probably the best way I can describe it. And I hope that you can like visualize it because our brain is so cool in what it does, but it needs the sleep. It needs at least seven and a half hours of sleep every night in order to do what it needs to do the next day. Okay. Um, let's move on to question number three. And this question says, do you have any input on dealing with a single parent that has depression as a teenager that still lives at home? I feel like no one talks about this and it's really hard to live day by day because I'm just worried all of the time, not about their physical safety, but just the thought of them never being happy again. Also, this might sound stupid, but in this scenario, is it possible for depression to be contagious? I know there's a genetic component to it as well. And sometimes I can't tell if I'm empathic and soaking up their emotions or if I'm actually depressed myself. 
I have a therapist. And when she asked me if I get depressed, I couldn't really give an answer because I don't know what's normal or what, um, what isn't, if that makes sense. Love the podcast. Oh, I'm so glad. That's a great question. First of all, um, just because I feel like I need to say it, you're not responsible for how your parent feels. You're not responsible for the depression. You're not responsible for making them feel better. Spoilers, you can't make them feel better. And we can't actually do much when it comes to that. They have to want to get better. Okay. I get people asking me all the time and tagging me in comments online saying, help this person or do that. I'm like, they have to help themselves. Therapists aren't like superheroes. I can't come in and like force your brain to feel better, right? And you can't do that for someone else either. Would it be great if we could? Sure. But it also is like a little enmeshed and not very healthy when it comes to boundaries. So just had to throw that out there. Very important to consider. You're not responsible for their mood. You can't make them feel better. You can't do any, you know, there. essentially there's nothing that you can do other than take care of yourself, check in on them, and support positive behavior. Meaning if if your parents like, hey, I was thinking about going to therapy, you can be like, oh my God, it's been so life-changing for me. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Or if you want me to, you know, help you find someone, I'm happy to help that. There are things that you can do that way. But other than that, that's, you know, we can't do anything. Um, and it sucks. And I'm sure, you know, you worry about them because you love them. And you can say that to them. You can say, I, you know, I worry about you not feeling happy and you know, have you considered you know, trying therapy or medication? We can try to encourage them. But again, we can't make them get better. They have to want to get better. And yes, it sucks. And I'm sorry. But unfortunately, it's it's true. Now, the question about it being contagious. No, uh, depression is not contagious. Yes, there are uh, genetic components. However, I will say that there is something to spending a lot of time with someone who is going through something like depression or anxiety, if we struggle with boundaries, which it sounds like this person who wrote this question really does, if we struggle with boundaries and we like pick up on people's vibes and energy in a room, meaning we're empathic, which is a superpower, but it's also, you know, your Achilles heel can put you in places, in positions where, you know, it's not very healthy or happy. So anyways, long story short, if we struggle with boundaries, we're going to pick up on what they are experiencing and we can start to manifest it ourselves. Is that mean does that mean it's contagious? No, that means we struggle with boundaries and we don't have the ability to say that's their issue. I still had a great day. You know? And I think that that uh reliance on other people's experience and emotions and mood or and I don't know if reliance is the right word, but I guess just vulnerability to other people's emotional states is something that we should be working on in our therapy. So if your therapist is asking if you were depressed, I would say I've been feeling that way, but I think it's because of my parent and my struggle with boundaries. You could even say, ask this weird therapist online and that's what she thinks. And that those are my thoughts. So I would really you'd be curious, not judgmental about your process here. And I think we're going to have to figure out how to place and uphold healthy emotional boundaries. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that says, my mother struggles with depression too. <clears throat> I have the feeling that it's my fault if she tries to kill herself again. And so I try everything to prevent that. You're not responsible for someone's actions. I feel obligated to always seem happy and to make her feel good because of my, uh, oh, because of my own mental health, I will move out soon. And I'm scared that she could die or that my younger sister could take on the responsibility for her emotional and physical well-being. How can I help both of them? I really love my mother and it would kill me literally if she dies because I was not there to save her. Oh, boundaries, you guys, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. 
I know it's hard to watch someone we love struggle with a mental illness. But again, I told you the ways that we, you can take action. Things like supporting good behavior, encouraging them to seek out help. We can't make them go. And you can push people away by trying to ask and ask and ask and ask, okay? Um, but they have to want it. We can't make them get better. We can't make them do their therapy homework and all that stuff. But you need some healthy boundaries. You're not responsible for your mom. Unfortunately, I would... I would have, I have questions about this, a lot of questions. I am very suspicious about like emotional neglect because usually when a parent struggles with depression, they're not there for us emotionally. There's no support there. Um, and that can, you know, make us fawn. It, it can be a trauma response where we like people please to the max. We try to do everything just right to make them feel better. Spoilers, you can't make them feel any kind of way. I know this is hard to hear. This is like tough love, Katie, coming in hot because you're not responsible for your mom or her emotional state. She is. You can encourage her to get help. Um, you're also not responsible for your younger sister. You can talk to her about what's happening and encourage her to have healthy boundaries, um, which I would really encourage you to do. Or if she can get into therapy, please have her get into therapy. And if you truly are worried about your mom, you can, if you have this in your area, we in California used to have what's called a pet team. It's a psychological evaluation team. You can call them and they can check up on her and do, you know, like a wellness check. Um, I prefer it to police or EMTs because they don't always know. It can be like more traumatizing and they don't always know how to interact with people who are suicidal or struggling with self-injury or anything like that. But the pet team can. Um, I'm glad you're moving out. That's going to be good for you. And the reason it's going to be good for you is because of this difficulty with uh, emotional boundaries and the urge to fawn is really strong. Um, yeah, that, that's what I've, because you, you cannot save her. I, I, I know that it's hard for you to hear me and believe me, but there's nothing you can do to save your mom. She has to save herself. I, what, I, and just the last, this is the last thing I'll say about this, but one of my favorite quotes is you cannot light yourself on fire to keep someone else warm. And that's what could be happening here. And that's probably why your mental health has deteriorated to where it is, is because of your mom. And that's her fault, not yours. She's responsible for her actions. She's responsible for her own mental health and for taking care of herself, just like you and I are responsible for ourselves, right? Okay, I'll stop being so tough. Move on to the next. Um, and there's one more. It says, as an add-on, how do you deal with a parent who often talks about not caring if they die and how they've lived long enough, especially if the parent has threatened suicide in the past? The only thing we can do <clears throat> is tell them that that's hurtful to us and that we want them around and we love them. And again, if we think that they're at risk, we can call supportive teams or we can encourage them to get help. Um, it sucks. I mean, I even dealt with that a little bit with my grandma when she was, before she passed away, when my papa passed, I mean, it'd been, I think three years by the time she passed away, but it's like, she just didn't want to live anymore. And it was really hard to hear. And she would say stuff like that. And I would say, grandma, do you realize how much that hurts me? I, I cannot listen to that. That's really hard for me. You can think that way. You can feel that way. You don't want to be here anymore. You want to be with Papa. I understand. But I want you here. Sure, it's selfish, but I want you here, you know? Um, and she stopped mentioning it because I just told her it really was like heartbreaking for me. Um, and that's really all we can do because I just, it, it it's, there was nothing I can do to change her mind. She wasn't going to see a therapist. She was 86. Like it, I talked to her about it. I really think she should have seen a grief counselor. But anyway, Long story short, we cannot make people think better, do better, want any of those things. Unfortunately, they have to want it themselves. I know it's hard. 
but it's that like a love from a distance, that supportive yet I'm not going to light myself on fire to keep you warm. Now, moving on to question four, it says, hi, Katie, how can I finally defeat depression once and for all? I've been struggling with depression for almost as long as I can remember. I've had my lowest of lows, and I can say that I'm lucky enough right now not to be completely surrounded by that dark fog that feels like it's taking every part of myself away. While I'm glad I'm not doing as bad as I was a half a year ago, I still can't feel any joy in anything or see anything positive in the future. Is it even possible to defeat depression when it's been around for such a long time? I'd love to hear your tips for getting better. What a great question. Now, I have a couple thoughts. First, and sorry, I'm still a little congested. If it bothers you that I'm clearing my throat, I apologize. But I had, if you don't know, I had COVID two weeks ago. I tested positive. I know this is coming out in a couple weeks, so I'll probably be fine by the time you hear this. But um, I still have a little bit of congestion. I'm hoping it'll be gone here in a couple of days. Okay, now back to the question. When we have depression or anxiety or really any mental illness, any kind of, I I like to think of mental illnesses as like our go-to way to cope with life's shittiness because life can be shitty sometimes, right? It's like our brain. Any of you remember this old video? You have to shout it out in the comments. But it's like our brain is this balloon filled with sand. And when things are difficult, our, our brain rolls marbles in the sand and it creates little ruts. So when things are difficult, it rolls this marble over to depression symptoms. And we think no joy, concentration difficulties, I don't sleep very well, but right, we go right into our, maybe it's even our depression routine. Don't leave the house, don't shower, um, you know, don't eat regularly, binge at night, whatever it is that we do. I don't know. Any, everybody's symptoms are a little different, but our brain goes into that mode. And we've been doing that for years. So that rut of that marble rolling between difficult times and depressive symptoms is really fucking deep. What does that mean? It means that in the last six months, because you said a half a year ago, you're not as bad, right? So you filled in that rut a little bit. So it's easier for you to jump out of it and to do other things. Now, this does not take into account the fact that there's genetic components to depression and we may just need medication. Um, but this is like more behavioral changes because those do impact our overall mental health and can pull us out of depression as well. It just depends on the severity and kind of what we need because everyone's, you know, has individual needs. There's going to be different, right? Anyways, you filled in that rut a little bit in the last six months. And I want to continue, I want you to continue filling that rut. And the way that we do that is instead of letting those depressive symptoms kind of trickle back in where we're like, I don't feel joy. I don't have anything positive in the future. Why are we focusing on the things we don't have and the negatives? That's what depression wants you to do. But instead, I encourage you each and every day to look out into your environment and look for things that are going well, things that went like uh, little positives, like I hit all the green lights on my way to work or, oh, that person let me in when I forgot that I need to turn right. You know, those are just ways on the, oh, or I was able to uh get out of the house fast enough. I got to pick up a coffee for myself. Or, wow, I got a good night's sleep last night. That never happens. Whatever it is. I was able to shower. Woo. I got a call from a friend or someone texted me, right? There are going to be these small positives throughout each and every day. I want you to be like, like a, I guess, I don't know why my brain went to this, but I was like, I want you to be like a truffle dog. You know, dogs can be trained to sniff out truffles or a, a pig that's trained to sniff out truffles. I want you to be, a tr- uh, instead of truffles, positives, and you're sniffing them out. I want you to look for them. You're like a detective for positive things. And I want you to be looking almost like in those old highlights magazines in doctor's offices where they're like, you had to find all the items. 
I want you to be looking for those items. Really dig in and look. That's truly the way to kick our depression's ass and to keep it out. And then there's obviously other things like, right, we have like therapy, medication. I've mentioned some other ways. There's other coping skills aside from seeking positive. But I find in this scenario in particular, the focus on what we don't have is what's kind of pulling you back. It's like a tractor beam into that depressive mode. And I want you instead to force your brain into a new way of thinking, right? We're not going into that rut anymore. We're pushing sand in it as we try to create this new one out of depression into a more positive and just even neutral space, right? I've talked about this before, like toxic positivity bothers me. Like we don't have to all of a sudden think everything's amazing. We just have to think things aren't as shitty as we thought yesterday. And that's improvement. And that's what we're looking for. So I hope that that helps. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, I know suicidal thoughts and depression are different and that you can have depression without suicidal thoughts. Correct. But is it possible to have suicidal thoughts, but not depression? Yes, it is. I am. Uh, I have almost constant thoughts of suicide and I'm very anxious, but I don't think I'm depressed and I don't understand how that's possible. And are suicidal thoughts in the absence of depression harder or easier to treat? Thanks for everything that you do. <clears throat> this is a great question. Now, yes, you can have depression, not have suicide. Yes, you can have suicidal thoughts and not have depression. And I know for a lot of people, it seems like counterintuitive. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But you said you're very anxious. Now, I don't believe that suicidal thoughts exist without another mental illness. Could be bipolar disorder, could be borderline personality disorder, could be an anxiety disorder. And the reason that we can have suicidal thoughts without depression is because suicide often doesn't have anything to do with depression. It can, but it doesn't, right? Many of my patients with anxiety and panic attacks don't like how they feel. And some of them, especially if the panic attacks are happening with frequency like over and over and over, like three times a day, let's say, we can want out. This life sucks. I hate how this feels. Suicidal thoughts, right? Or uh, I had a patient who had bipolar disorder. And after Um, I guess bipolar disorder does come with depression. So let's remove that as an example. As I was saying that, I was like, oh, she went into a depressed episode. Never mind. But let's say, um, you know, PTSD, um, an eating disorder. We can have suicidal thoughts that aren't related to a depressive symptom or to a major depressive disorder, right? Um, I wonder if I answered that question. Let me look. I'm very anxious. I don't think, yeah. Um, It doesn't make it harder or easier to treat. I treat it in the very same way, except for it's just different, meaning that when someone has suicidal thoughts and it's not linked to depression, the things that I'm going to try to work on aren't those depressive symptoms. It's getting resolution for you. I assume it'd be resolution of your anxiety. So I would focus a lot of my behavioral techniques and things that I would talk to you about around anxiety treatment. And so that would be my focus. So it's not harder or easier. It's just different. It'd just be catered to you and the things that are bothering you. Does that make sense? I hope so. So yes, if anybody out there was curious, you can have suicidal thoughts without depression and you can have depression without suicidal thoughts because suicide can accompany a lot of different mental illnesses. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, could you talk about chronic depression and suicidal ideation? I have struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts for as long as I can remember. And even when things are a little bit better, those thoughts are still there. Will they ever go away? Or is this just something that I have to learn to manage? 
I've been in therapy and on medication for a long time, but nothing has made that much of a difference. Thanks for everything you do. Your videos are really helpful. Chronic depression fucking sucks. Chronic mental illnesses suck. Um, and I think my my knee-jerk gut reaction is like, I think we're going to need a different medication and possibly a different treatment. And I only say this because if we have been doing the things that we know to do to get better, right? We're seeing a psychiatrist, we're seeing a therapist, and we're not improving. Now, I would encourage each and every one of you to talk with your therapist about this improvement, because I will tell you that especially when we're depressed, we won't see the improvement, but our therapist will and have them maybe reference a couple months ago or six months ago or whatever, however long you've been seeing them, reference some notes. I used to do this with my patients all the time where I'm like, you've been making a lot of progress. It's really important in therapy, I think, to remind our patients that they're making progress because we can, as the patient, start to just feel like we're plateauing and things aren't getting better, but we forget how far we've come. So check in on that. Do some fact checking. Ask your therapist about your progress. Um, But if you legitimately are not making any moves towards a better you and you still feel these depressive symptoms really strongly, we may want to consider a different medication. You can do those cheek swabs. It's like a genetic test to see what medications will work best for you. Uh, They're not like 100%, but it's just another potential option to put out there that you could try to kind of, you know, figure out which medications to maybe try next versus feeling like you have this whole gamut of them and it's overwhelming to try to pick one. And talk to your psychiatrist, obviously, see what they recommend. But doing that, And then considering other types of treatment, I find a lot of times when it's chronic, uh, group therapy is really, really beneficial. And also I find, um, you know, having like a different style, like a schema therapy or even a somatic experiencing, or maybe even EMDR. One of my patients years ago did EMDR for a very short period of time. It was just like one uh, recurring suicidal ideation she had and it would pop up and it was kind of traumatizing. It would pop up over and over and over and over. And she went to EMDR for five or six sessions. I forget. Boom. And it, w- it was like life changing. It helped us finally move out of that like plateau that we had found ourselves stuck in. So consider some things like that. I think um, I also going back to the question I answered before, it's kind of nice that all these questions are like themed, even though I know we usually have themes every week. But when I was talking about searching for the positive and being a detective for that kind of stuff, not letting your depression like tractor beam you back in, um, give that a go too, because I think that will make a huge difference. Now, there was a comment on this, and this is I completely relate to this. Whenever anything goes wrong, I feel like in the moment I will instinct instinctually have the suicidal thoughts. I immediately catch myself right after, and I realize that I don't actually mean it. I feel like it's almost an automatic reaction. Could it simply be because for so long that was our go-to method? Exactly. It's like you read my mind our go-to method for coping. And now that path in our brains is just so much stronger than other coping methods. And if so, is there any way to program our brain to not automatically go there? It's that rut. Now, the way to actually reprogram is even though it's going to happen, we it, we cannot just all of a sudden stop. You're instinctively going to have those suicidal thoughts. When you recognize that that's happening, I want you, it's, it's going to be like this new muscle and it might not work at first. It might be like for two seconds, you're able to do it and then 10 seconds, but stay with it. It's like we're building a new muscle. It's like we're doing Pilates for the first time and you're like, I have a muscle there. What is this? Oh my God, this is so hard, right? So when you find your brain going instinctively to those suicidal thoughts, I want you instead to, and maybe we do this pre-work ahead of time. Maybe we put the list on our phone, like in our notes, 
maybe there uh, we try to come up with, and I'm just giving some ideas, some things that we're looking forward to. Maybe we have a trip coming up or a long weekend, or we have a friend coming to visit or we're going out to dinner. What's something that we're looking forward to? Maybe the weekend's coming and we're super excited about that because weekends are awesome and I don't have to get dressed, right? Whatever. Write down some things that you look forward to that you enjoy. Um, I would probably write down, like keep track of your positives. We're going to be those looking for those. But um, also uh, write down some people that are important to us and have that available. So when we have that impulsive reaction, boom, suicidal thoughts, I want you to pull out that thing. I want you to read it. And I want you to just try to like absorb it little by little. Like I said, this might only keep you for two seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds. It's okay. Again, you have this deep rut because we've been doing it for so long. This is our go-to coping, even though it's not helpful, right? Um, We'd have that deep rut. We need in the moment to have something else to focus on that's more positive. Then after that, we can try to do things like impulse logs. Again, um, you can go to, I think it's selfinjury.com. They show, show you impulse logs and walk you through it. People don't love the video explaining it, but whatever. It's there. It's also in my new book, Traumatized. But impulse logs can be something we do, right? We can do more things, try to shower. There are other things we can do later, like shake out. We can do other coping skills. But in the moment, I feel like we just need something quickly to reference to pull our brain. Again, we're trying to just lessen that tractor beam and trying to retrain it to think more positively. So give that a try. Again, be patient with yourself. You didn't come to where you are right now overnight. So we're not going to fix it overnight. We can't just stop and up. Okay. And also, sorry, just, I know I'm talking fast today, maybe because I'm excited. It's just a lot to talk about. But the last thing I want to say is no judgments. Okay. I know when you instinctively go to these suicidal thoughts, you immediately shit talk yourself. You're like, I can't believe I'm thinking about this again. This is so stupid. Blah, 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 blah. That's not helpful either. Uh-uh. I want you instead to say, Katie said, I'm doing a fucking good job. I'm doing my best. I have my list. Look at all this work I've done. I want you to say that to yourself. Maybe write that in your list. Katie says, I'm doing a fucking good job. You got this. No judgments needed. We're just going to try to learn something new. Okay. Got it? Okay. <laughs> now, let's move on to question number seven. Oh, and I don't know if I said we have nine total today. <clears throat> so question number seven says, hi, Katie, how do you validate yourself when you have high functioning depression? Being able to do things makes me feel as though I'm crazy. I feel bad internally, but externally, I'm still able to do things and do them well. Even I'm in counseling and I find it difficult to portray my depressed. I was just going to ask about this. If you have a tough time being honest about where you're at, but let's read. Okay. I'm in counseling and I find it difficult to portray my depressive symptoms without feeling overly dramatic or attention seeking. On my counselor side, I seem to be making progress as I'm doing a lot of things. Perhaps I'm making progress, but still feel terrible. I don't know. It honestly just makes me feel so crazy. I love this question. I'd be curious if you're like kind of a people pleaser, like I, uh, you know, I used to be worse. I'm still, I still battle it. Um, but that sounds kind of people pleasy. But anyways, I encourage you to tell your therapist about this. Tell them I'm able to do the things I need to and I do them well, but I'm like white knuckling it. Like I'm barely surviving. A lot of times we think that the only way to prove that we're doing really badly or struggling is to not function. But a lot of us are really good white knucklers, meaning we can get to work on time. I can do my work. I can actually even do my job well. I've got a promotion. But then I come home and I'm wiped. It took everything I had to do that thing. So usually our social life is suffering. 
weekends, we like maybe don't even get out of bed, right? We're barely hanging on. And even if you're not weekends, you barely get out of bed, maybe you still do a lot of things, but you're just exhausted all the time and you don't enjoy anything. That's also not good. We need to tell our therapist about this process and say, you know, I have trouble even telling you how I really feel because I feel like I'm being dramatic because I am able to do stuff. But again, go back to the truth, but I barely can do it. And I just feel like shit the whole time, right? So many people have high functioning depression. I don't even like that we call it high function. You have depression. You just happen to have this like chutzpah or this like resilience, this like window where, and you're just pulling from that, your bank of resilience. You're, you're going to go into debt soon enough, but right now you're just burning through it to get through your days and to do what you have to do. A lot of us, especially parents will do this a lot because you have to be there for your kids and you got to get up and do shit. You can't just stay in bed all day that can force us out too. Does that mean that we're not suffering as much as the person who can't get out of bed? No, that just means we have fucking responsibilities. Someone's counting on us. We feel like we don't have a choice, right? It's like, um, you can even apply it to like having a cold or the flu. You would still get up and do things, even though you know you probably should rest because you have to do stuff, right? I woke up with a cold. Can I stay home? I mean, now COVID, I know things are different, but just hear me out. Pre-COVID, you just suck it up buttercup i remember um being in new york at the end of 2019 in like october i had to give a talk at youtube space and then i also was filming with my good friend chelsea fagan from uh, the financial diet and i caught a cold and i like just medicined myself up did everything i had to do and then was so exhausted i mean i was exhausted at the end of the day i was exhausted so you know we just suck it up we do does that mean i'm not as sick as someone else who has the same cold no but they just get to lay in bed. That's just, everybody's different. So anyways, long story short, please tell your therapist about this. Even read them this question. Say, hey, I asked, you know, this therapist online about this and she told me to tell you and, you know, say I struggle with this because I think a lot of us struggle with the validation of the fact that it's depression. High functioning depression is depression. There's no separate diagnoses for those of us who can fucking white knuckle it and to our own demise, keep doing what we got to do, right? So I know it makes you feel crazy, but you you need to, and you probably are making progress, but because you're just barely surviving, it just doesn't feel good. You're still depressed. Um, also, I wonder if you're people pleasing again, going back to that, because you said on the counselor side, you're making progress as you're doing a lot of things. I think we need a caution. I, I would... Let your therapist know that I had that suspicion because I'm wondering if your urge to do everything, quote unquote, that you need to do, right? Again, it's these things that you have to do. I have to go to work. I have to go to, you know, uh, do this stuff. I have to see these people. The have tos pushes you out of your depression. Not that you still don't, you don't have it, but it pushes you just to do it, even though you don't enjoy it and you probably feel like shit. And I wonder if you're doing the same thing in therapy. I'd be very like curious about that. And then there might be certain things that your therapist could do to challenge that. Let her know and keep me posted. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight says, hello, Katie. I'm glad to see you're trying new things for the podcast. Yay. I'm so glad this time seems like it would work better for me. Oh yeah. Cause I am releasing. If you also didn't realize I'm asking for the questions at different times to get people in different time zones, to give you an opportunity to get enough thumbs ups, to get your questions picked. I know you strongly discourage it, but is it possible to work through mild suicidal thoughts on your own if you do not feel comfortable telling anyone or your therapist about it? Is there a way to indirectly work on it in therapy? Any homework tips you can give for working on it on your own? Yes, I do discourage it. 
only because we need support. There's nothing wrong with needing support and trying to break ourselves out of that rut that we have in our brain. Again, going back to that marble and saying, I'm glad I brought that up because it's like easy to reference. And I don't know if you like it, but it's like so visible for me. I can see it like, you know, making that rut. Um, But it's so hard for us to get out of it on our own because we might not see the ways that it's pulling us back, like those tractor beams, like I was talking about with the other question, how that focus on the negative can like pull us back. I guess those are some of the tips and some of the ways that I would encourage you to work on it on your own. Um, That would be like looking for the positives. That would be using impulse logs. Um, That would be, you know, taking care of your basic needs. A lot of times these suicidal thoughts or depressive symptoms or whatever accompanies our suicidal thoughts uh, come out when we don't take care of our you know, we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right? The halt. So if we haven't slept well, we haven't fed ourselves well, we're we're not connecting with people. So we feel really lonely or something's made us really angry, right? If any of those things are happening, we are more vulnerable to our emotions and we're vo- more vulnerable to impulses and suicidal thoughts can be impulsive. And so taking, taking care of those basic needs and then doing some of those other things that I recommended could be incredibly helpful. Now, I think an indirect way of working on it in therapy, if you're scared to say that they are suicidal thoughts, you could just tell your therapist, again, because, you know, there is overlap with depression, sometimes, not always, but you could say that, you know, you felt like your depression is like sucking the hope out of your life. That's the way you could bring it up. And you could talk about it that way under the guise of depression, because a lot of the symptoms can overlap, right? And suicidal thoughts can be part of depression. Now, a good therapist is going to ask a lot of questions and they might like ask directly about that. You can say whatever you want, but I think that might be a way of getting some support through the symptoms that you're experiencing. So I'd focus more on the symptoms of it instead of actually calling it what it is if you're not comfortable using that word. And I totally understand. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. I went to a mental health training. This is a good question. They're all such great questions. Um, I went to a mental health training and we learned what to do if someone is suicidal. We ask three questions. Number one, do you have a specific way of doing it? Number two, do you have a specific date? Number three, do you have the means prepared to do it? Now, this hit me hard because I can answer yes to number one and three. And the trainer said that if a person answers any of these questions, then take them to the hospital ASAP. My question is, if I don't feel like it's an emergency for myself at the moment, then do I need to go to the hospital for help? If I tell my therapist, will she make me go? Thanks for all that you do. It, remember, I always said, like, is do you have the means? Is the threat eminent? Um, that's kind of what those questions are about. And that's why they focus on that, because that means that the threat is there and it's something that's viable and we need to we have to manage it. Now, we are trained like that. But like I said, my steps are a little bit different. Um, I. I do obviously ask those questions, but I also trust my judgment with my patients and I work with the safety plan between them and myself. I do check-ins, we increase sessions. Um, You know, we have a plan and I think having that safety plan really, really helps. Now, if you don't think that you are a danger, I really would encourage you to to speak up and talk about your struggles with your therapist. Um, Before opening up, if we don't think we need to go to the hospital, I would ask them about this. I would just even bring it up. Say, I went to this training and they talked about, you know, for suicidal things, they asked these three questions. And I know I struggle with suicidal thoughts, but I don't feel like I'm a danger. You know, what would make you 
put somebody in the hospital because I'm. you could just say I'm really struggling with this, you know, um, hopefully they know that you have some suicidal thoughts. If they don't, it's up to you whether you want to share or not. Because like I said, those are the steps that I go through, but everybody's different. And some mental health professionals will hospitalize us quickly. Um, and what I think is really traumatizing and, you know, it's too fast, but we have to check in. We need to know what they're, and they might even have it if you Maybe like me, I, I sign paperwork with my therapist off the time. I don't read all of it. And if you're like me and you did that, you might want to look at your paperwork that you got at your first session. Maybe they emailed it to you now because almost everything is like, you know, that way. Read in there because a lot of times they'll tell you their protocol in their paperwork. Um, okay, so if you don't feel like I'm just making sure I answered your question. So if you don't feel like it's an emergency, um, do I need to go to the hospital for help? you know your symptoms best. You know how it feels for you. You know what you need. Um, I'd be very curious about that. Like what makes you think that you, it's not an emergency. Do you know you're not going to do it because you said that you, um, you just have the means and you have a specific way, you have a plan and the means, but you don't have a date. And that's why you don't need to go to the hospital. See, I, unlike the trainer, I was trained that they have to have all of those things, not just one. Because one, like, do you have a specific way of doing it? A lot of my patients have a plan, but no intention of acting on that plan. So I think that's kind of bullshit personally, but it's all up to the person. And I, I, I personally have conversations with my patients and take it from there based on what they think and feel and asking them why they think and feel that way. Um, so I don't think you need to go to the hospital if you don't think you need to go to the hospital. Um, and then your therapist, I would ask a little bit probe about stuff like that. Mention your training and that you were surprised and ask them like, how were you trained? That's what I would say. What's your protocol? Um, and that can just help you decide. But I, I really encourage you guys, if, if you can to talk about these thoughts and to talk about what you're going through so that you can receive the help. I know it's a risk. I know it can suck. I know not everybody's good at their jobs, but if you trust and like your therapist and, and you ask them about their protocol ahead of time, hopefully you feel safe enough to share because it can get better. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast and leaving your reviews and for asking all your questions. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know, ask Kate.